Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Randy, how's it going? Hey, Jake, I'm doing great today. How are you doing? Doing pretty well, except that I sprained my thumb when we were jamming together last weekend. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, I remember that. And you did it on the last catch, so kind of a good thing and a bad thing. It's like, well, I'm glad you did it on the last catch and not the first <laughs> catch, but I'm sorry that you did it at all. Yeah, well... I am too, but you know what? It's actually, in a way, there's a silver lining, which is I get to challenge myself to play left-handed so I can see really how deep my game goes when I'm just going with my left hand. Way to see the glass half full instead of half empty, my friend. You're very good at that. So I'm really excited about today's episode and our guest. He is, uh, it's even hard to know where to begin with him. He was in the initial class of the Hall of Fame inductees that happened just recently in New York City. He is one of the pioneers. He's one of the innovators. He has so much history. And I, I think a lot of folks are going to learn just how much of an impact this person had on our sport of freestyle. So with that, I would love to welcome in John Kirkland. John, thank you for joining us here on Shooting the Frisbees. Randy and Jake, it's my pleasure. Yes, thank you very much for joining us. I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, you've been a hero of mine for a long time in the Frisbee sport, so this is really cool to get to pick your brain and, and learn a lot about uh, the part of the Frisbee history that I just wasn't a part of. <laughs> yeah, and what's interesting is that I actually was part of the history of John Kirkland back in the day. And John, you may not know this, but you had a huge impact on me saying, this is what I want to do. I want to do this freestyle thing. And it was one moment in particular, and it was an NAS tournament in Seattle, Washington, in Lower Woodland Park. And you were playing with Jeff Jorgensen. And Jeff Jorgensen threw you this long upside down hammer, and you puddled it out of the air from the, the throw. And that blew my mind. And I said, I have to pursue this sport. So thank you for that that light bulb moment, Mr. Kirkland. I remember that tournament well. It may have even been 77 because I was playing a lot with Jeff that summer, culminating in playing together in the Rose Bowl. Keep in mind that he's a lefty and that he was throwing, since he's throwing a left hand upside down forehand, it actually had left spin. So to be precise, it was an against against the puddle. Against oh my the God. puddle. I've never even thought about it against the puddle versus with the puddle. That's a whole other <laughs> reality of Frisbee. And that makes it that much more amazing because it's hard to do on its own. I, you know, just even to pick it up off the ground and do a puddle, it's hard. But out of a long hammer throw and then it was going the other spin, that is truly remarkable. Stupid human tricks. <laughs> That's what <laughs> we're all about. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, well, we're going to start where we start with everybody, John. And uh, so it's just with the basic question. So how did Frisbee come into your life? You know, there are a few moments that stick up above the humdrumery of one's memory. I remember the brilliant blue sky in a North Carolina afternoon in the summer of 1957. And I just remember standing around with a bunch of other kids 
I'm not exactly sure what the game was. I think it was pretty much a babysitting effort at camp. So they had a bunch of us standing on one in, in one square and a bunch in the other. And I just remember this green Pluto platter flying overhead and reaching up for it. It was the first sport that I ever, or the first thing that ever really, you know, entranced me. And ever since then, you know, it's, it's a love affair that has gone on for 61 years and counting. But I mean, you know. So what year was that 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 happened? That was 1957. 1957. And so did you continue to play Frisbee consistently from 1957 on? You know, I went when I came back from camp, I went to the uh, Pickerel Sporting Goods in Orlando, Florida and bought a, a Pluto platter. And then I, I don't remember much about playing in those years other than I could always throw it far and that the the full power release underhand never really seemed like the full power release, no matter what the packaging said. And, Wait, what, uh, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, on the, on, the, on the packages, it used to show, you know, to fly, flip away, backhanded, you know, Lou's, uh, Fred's wife, Lou, had the famous words that are on the back of all the Frisbees. I did like to flip it away backhanded, flat flip, fly straight. But on the packaging, they said, and you might want to try the full power release, which showed an underhand release. I, I have to say that the first tournament I ever went to, which was not until 1973 at the IFT in Upper Michigan, I'm sitting there practicing distance, and this gray-haired fellow behind me says, you might want to try the full power release, you know, as I'm warming up. And it's Stansel Johnson, and he's trying to tell me that an underhand is the full power release. And then I threw one out there about 100 yards, and he said, hmm, but I'm willing to change my mind about that. Because <laughs> you threw the other one way farther. Oh, yeah, and so does everyone. I mean, the, the underhand really is just what we use to throw each other's Zs. Like when you throw it up to yourself, or if you toss it to somebody else and you just reach down by your side like you're going to bowl and just pop it up, it can't be thrown very far, but I don't know exactly why they thought that that was the full power release. My roommate currently, uh, Juna Baudet, known to many folks as Tom Baudet in the old days, used to have a pretty darn good uh, underhand. And he tells me stories about when he first got the whammo. These guys had, I was going to say zero idea, but I think it was actually less than zero. They actually knew what they knew made them worse than if they knew nothing. And he blew their minds with what he could do, you know, behind the back forehands and skip shots and stuff. All of their idea about the Frisbee toy changed in those following years, starting around 68, 69, when the sport really started going and it changed from a toy to a sport. So that's interesting. I want to go back to that. So you said you started in, you saw... The Frisbee in 1957, then IFT was your first tournament in 1973, and you say the sport kind of was developing in the late 60s. So where, when did you start to see the sport developing and seeing other players, and like, how did that all transpire? Well, from 57 until 73, I pretty much never saw anyone that was any good at all. I just played catch with folks. I remember when the Master came out. It was the Pluto platter and then the Morris platter. And then the Pro came out in 64 in the fall. Uh, then the Master came out around 67 when I was in college. And I really started playing a lot more 
when the master came out. Just my friends and I would just play catch. And the, the whole thing was to throw far, be accurate, and things like, you know, diving off the edge of the pool and catching it, those sorts of things. There were no, not where I was, there were no games of any sort. There was no golf. There was no ultimate. Of course, ultimate hadn't been invented yet. But it was just playing catch. And the idea was throw it exactly where you aimed you know, jumping high and diving and all that sort of thing. I, I wish Ultimate had been around when I was a, a, a late teenager uh, because I would have loved it. But pretty much nothing was going on for me in Florida through the 60s. And it wasn't until I was in Boston in the summer of 73 in Boston Common, there was a Frisbee fly-in. It was a, one of Ernie Wilkerson's brainstorms to entrain radio stations with the Frisbee fever, and it was really an excuse to sell premium regulars to radio stations. I heard over the radio, hey, big Frisbee fly-in in the park, come out on Saturday. They had it set up so that you would throw three throws from the pitcher's mound to a single hula hoop at home plate, and then you'd go throw distance. And if you could throw over 40 yards, you got three points. And if you could throw over 30, you got two. And if you throw over... 25, you got one point. So you get a maximum of, of six points. You could get a point for each accuracy throw you made and three points in distance. That was the first tournament I'd ever gone to. And interestingly enough, I had always been able to throw pretty far. I could always throw farther than anyone else I knew. I, I, you, you know, you, you, don't, you have no idea how far you can throw relative to others. But I always just figured that I could throw farther than anyone because I always did. And I get to this tournament. And I'm throwing, and I throw a master out there about 80-something yards. And this kid throws past me. He throws like 90 yards. And I'm like, oh, great. I always thought I was great. And the very first little dinky thing I go to, I get beat. And, uh, of course, that kid turned out to be Dave Johnson. He was one of the longest throwers of all time. First guy yeah. to throw over 400 feet. Uh, he had a giant arm. So Dave Johnson was that original tournament that you went to. I wonder if that was his first tournament as well. It was. It's, it is sort of funny because I thought about that and I thought, you know, I could have just said, I had the heck with it. I thought I was all that. And I go to some little local tournament and I get beat by a guy. It sort of reminds me of the story of um, a guy named Dave Pelt, who is a putting guru and a short game guru. He, was, he really helped Phil Mickelson a lot. He tells a story about growing up as a young guy, and he thought he was going to be a good golfer, and he always got beat by the local kid, and he just finally decided, if I can't beat the local kid, you know, no sense in trying to be a pro, so he went on to be a teacher. Of course, turns out the local kid was Jack Nicholas. so um, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't uh, get distracted by uh, the competition side of things and give up on it. As a matter of fact, Dave and I became very close, started playing a lot of catch together, and he and I... Another friend of ours, Doug McRae, went to that first IFT together where I met Stansel and all the Berkeley Frisbee group. During that first tournament and the IFT, was there any trick catches going on or was it all just kind of see how far you could throw it? Well, to be fair, all the years that I had been playing from 57 to 73, I, I, I didn't ever really try to do any trick catches. I always thought of trick catches. I mean... I would catch one under the leg every now and then. I would just think, well, that's just, you're just catching it. You're just lifting your leg up. I thought it was sort of, it seemed sort of extraneous. It seemed sort of silly. Why get, why get that leg in the way? What's right. the problem? I mean, it's just, you're still <laughs> catching it. 
you know, it's right there in your hand and all you do is you lift your leg up or turn your back or something. It just seems sort of, it didn't seem athletic compared to jumping way out and diving or catching it at the extreme. I, I, I probably was just coming from an athletic perspective rather than an artistic one. And that all changed at that IFT when I ran into Victor Malafronte, who made it look not uh, silly at all, but magnificently athletic. And he blew my mind. I've said before, and I'll say again, he's the only guy ever to, to blow my mind in Frisbee. I said, okay, I want to do all that stuff and a bunch more. So that IFT was, was transforming for me. So I want to ask you more about your first encounter with Victor Malafronte. What was it about his game that really drew you in? And um, tell us a little bit, like, what were tricks was he doing? Well, as I said, I always thought of doing trick catches as sort of not very athletic. Uh, you're just basically doing a bunch of thes in, you know, turning your body around. You're still doing a the. When I played with him, he could throw so hard. And throw so far. I mean, I went out on this field with him at that IFT, and he, his first throw is about a 60-yard behind-the-back forehand. Big, arcing thing going up in the sky. just blew my mind. You could throw a forehand behind the back that far. He was flashy, and he was athletic. All of a sudden, the silliness of trick catching became very demanding and an athletic, powerful thing. And I had just never thought of it like that and i vowed it from that moment to to uh, learn everything that he had and i got fired up about freestyle these are these are really the old days i mean very few people were, were doing any trick catches but the berkeley guys were john Connolly did a couple of things that i liked the, the disc would come in and he would if he couldn't get at it he'd tip at it people would the throw would be coming low and you'd kick at it and I thought, hmm, this kind of tipping at it and kicking at it, I thought, I should practice that. And I started throwing it up to myself, doing tips and kicks. So 1973, you meet Victor Malafronte. And then I'm trying to remember from folks that we've talked to already, Jersey Jam and Octab and things were really starting to explode. And I know we've talked to folks about Jersey Jam. <laughs> was this moment in time where everybody kind of was like going, wow, this is happening. So where did, let's see, how do I keep let me line. Let me let me tell you the way that I saw it and I experienced it. The Jersey Jam was a seminal moment for sure, but it occurred quite a bit later. And in retrospect, all of this had to happen in a certain way. One tends to remember it through the lens of one's own life. You know, everyone's the hero in their own movie. From my perspective, from that great court J. Edgar Hoover day to the great Frisbee fly-in a few months later to the IFT, that was just my introduction to it. I, I had met at that IFT, in addition to Victor, I had met his partner, Roger Barrett and struck up a friendship. And I thought, okay, I've got to follow this up. So I went and visited with Roger. Berkeley Frisbee Group BFG, it was called the BFG Tournament. And it was in November of 73. It was in Sproul Plaza and you had distance, which is how far you could throw up in one of the buildings enclosing the plaza. Cause it wasn't long enough for distance. See how far up a building you could hit. 
and they also had sort of trick accuracy, bunch as as many different kinds of throws as you could use, and it was connected to accuracy. And Victor won that trick accuracy, and I won the distance. And I hung out with Roger Barrett. It's 1973, and I'm with Roger, and I'm saying there has to be more of this. You know, I mean, it's not just you guys. Who else does this? And Roger had a list of possible people that that I could interact with. I wanted to learn from everyone that I could find anywhere. And so he gave me a list, and it, it included some folks in California and in a few other places. So I vowed to go see everyone on that list. I went and saw John Mortimer in San Francisco, and I tried to hook up with John Wyan in L.A., but he was busy. But I went and visited with Spider Wills in Laguna Beach. Had a great time with him. He was had a very interesting notion of freestyle. He was an ex-paratrooper, and he liked to play freestyle in sort of camouflage pants and paratroop boots. And he liked to sort of throw hard and close together. It was a very unusual kind of freestyle. It was sort of, wasn't exactly guts. It, I think it was what Stork had in mind when he had Eastern Trick Catch at the first Octad, which was the following spring. But he liked to throw behind the back and do sort of a limited repertoire of moves, but he was very clean and very powerful. And it was the Laguna Beach style, which actually there were several Laguna Beach styles. He was at one end uh, at Oak Street, and the other end was Baudet, who was doing much more interesting to me. Uh, well, actually, everything was interesting. I take that back. It was all fascinating, and I can't believe that all this has been going on while I was languishing in Florida. So I, I played with Spider, and then I went and I met Tom Baudet, and he was very influential and he had an interesting freestyle. He actually was one of those folks who was very influential behind the scenes that very few people know about. I mean, people may have heard of Tom Day, and I think he ran 99 tournaments for Stork in the 70s. People don't realize that he worked at Whammo in the, in the late 60s and was on the first uh, Whammo team, the California Masters that went back to the IFT. He was very influential figure and he was a very inf influential figure for me as well this list was a pretty big deal in how you started seeing frisbee and how people started gathering is that correct yes I, you have it's it's hard to to realize in retrospect but there was no scene frisbee was not a sport there was nothing there was this small little tournament in the, in the, at the IFT in Upper Peninsula, Michigan, that no one knew about. There was nothing, literally nothing. There was just a few people here and there that knew that there ought to be something. Whammo was the only game in town. Whammo made the Frisbee. They had the trademark. They're the only people that made discs. Uh, every now and then somebody else would come out, and but they would, they would snap them up. There was a company called CPI, Continental Promotions later changed the Concept Products Incorporated in Minneapolis that made a very nice disc. As a matter of fact, when I was in Berkeley, I got introduced to the C introduced to the CPI, and it flew farther than a Whammo than the Pro did. More on that soon. But there was no scene. 
how did you all gather? How did how did information get to and fro? Well, it didn't. Uh, the only thing I it turns out that there was an organization called the International Frisbee Association, the IFA, which Ed Hedrick started. They were doing their best to sort of talk about Frisbee. In 1968, Ed had convinced the powers that be, the board at Whammo, that Frisbee could be a sport. They should get together and, and have a, an event, which they did. They had a Rose Bowl event one afternoon in 68. Uh, well, they threw a world championship or a, an event, and no one came. The few people that got invited, Tom Baudet was one of them, along with Jay Shelton, and a few other folks, uh, and all the reps, and the Whammo people, but no one showed up. This sort of convinced them that there wasn't a sports market. It was just a toy. They'd like it to be more. They they sort of intuited that there was more to it than a hula hoop or a Super Bowl or a Magic Sand, but they tried it, and it didn't work. So by the time I showed up in 73 and had all this youthful exuberance, well, let's just say that I had this list from Roger. When I got this list from him, it had everything that he knew and had heard about from any possible source, the IFA newsletters. And so I vowed to go around and seeing all these folks. And so I went to Whammo, and I'll, I'll get back to that in a moment. I also went to um, Piscataway, New Jersey, and visited with Dan Roddick. And uh, we did all sorts of freestyle into the night. He and Flash Eberly, Bob Eberly, who's now known as Flash Kingsley, and Gary Subert, and stayed up and sang and had a great time with, with, with Stork. Showed him an air bounce and a few other things. And we were kind of picking our brains about how come there is nothing going on? This is such a wonderful thing. Why doesn't anybody do it? We brainstormed about it, but it sort of seemed like Whammo had decided that it wasn't a sport. They had tried it. Uh, we appreciate your uh, your interest, guys, but you know, you know, we under, we businessmen realize that it's never going to happen. I would have to say that the first big thing that did happen as a result of all of this. This was in December of 73 that I was with Stork. Uh, in the spring of 74, the first event ever that I consider a, the harbinger of today's sport was the Octad that he and Gary Subert put on and that everyone went to. That was the first big tournament. It had eight events. It, it, rather than the Jersey Jam, in my mind, is the beginning, is the genesis of the modern day sport. After Octad, the next big thing that happened in Frisbee was the American Flying Disc Open in the summer that Paul Murray put on that had golf and DDC. At that event, there were a bunch of whammo reps and they thought, man, disc golf, kind of a cool thing. Well, Frisbee golf, it's kind of a cool thing. You know, when you look back on this stuff, you wonder why did it go from being nothing to something? How did it go from zero to hero? There are a few critical cusps that happened. Basically, it was a matter of convincing Hedrick that indeed it could be a sport rather than just a toy. 
as he had always wanted it to be, but the smart money was against it. They had already tried it in 68. It comes down to convincing him that there's something going on that's important and that there's a movement afoot and that it could be a thing. And with the success of the Octad and the American Flying Disc or Open, a bunch of us, Victor and I and Dan and various people were trying to tell Ed, we should, we should have a thing. We should, we should keep this thing going. And he decided to give the Rose Bowl another try. And I came up with a list of all the people that were in various places. It's basically, I just filled out Roger's list. It just, Roger had started off with a list and I ended up going to New York and meeting all those folks and going to Chicago. And, and every time you'd meet somebody, you know, when I went to Dan, he, he said, oh yeah, I know this guy and this guy and, you know, all these different people in these isolated pods we invited them all together for the 74 Rose Bowl, and uh, that turned out to be a big deal. Yes, that 1974 Rose Bowl was a big deal. You know, one of the things that I found fascinating about that conversation was that there was a Rose Bowl that happened in 1968, and I didn't realize that there was a Rose Bowl before the Rose Bowls, and uh, that that initial Rose Bowl just was kind of a flop, and that because John got that list together and kind of got the jamly going that the 1974 Rose Bowl was a super success. Yeah, it's really cool that he had the energy and the drive and the resources to go from place to place to place and try to meet all of the different people. But um, I don't know, I just had this fantasy in my mind about how, how cool that would be when you're in this discovery mode. You're trying to learn learn new tricks and learn about learn, learn what is possible with the Frisbee because it's all brand new. Because there is no centralized organization, there's all these little pockets of people. And so he's just traveling around and learning this trick and then bringing it to another group and sharing what he's learned and then learning some new stuff and then bringing it to another group. And it would have been a really exciting place to be. As he said, there was no scene. So he was creating the scene by just sort of finding out from word of mouth who was out there and kind of connecting people together and letting others know that there were others out there and uh, you're not alone. <laughs> yeah, right. You're not the only one doing this crazy Frisbee stuff. There's a whole bunch of us and we all love it just as much. That's pretty cool. It was very close to not happening at all. We got to really be grateful for all those pioneers and those early folks who were able to kind of get this from the toy shelf into the sport world. I just want to say that our Patreon platform launch was a big success. We've already started getting some patrons and the more patrons we get, the better content and more content that we can provide to all of you out there. So if you like what we're doing and you want to see us continue this journey, please become a patron because that is what keeps the lights on. Yeah, definitely. I really echo that. And I just want to say thank you to everyone who's contributed and thank you to all our fans. We really love you guys. And it's what keeps us going. Indeed. And uh, on that note, Jake, I will talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to hate.